count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of... Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. You have found Daniel Donato's Lost Highway. That lost highway. Yes. Howdy, y'all. What is going on? We are here. We are present. We are aware. We are in the universe. And we are listening to the Lost Highway podcast, episode 31. This is Daniel Donato. And I am here to say that I do not think that reinventing the wheel is your responsibility. And I actually think that that is a, uh, it's a sign of, in some weird way, the sign of ego manifesting in your time horizons and your goals uh, that you have for yourself in whatever timeline you're operating on. So check this out. There's a quote by Tom T. Hall, one of the best country and Western writers that has ever graced this planet. And in his book, The Songwriter's Handbook, he says, try to be less incredible in your creation it has all been said before it's all been done the first day he moved to nashville somebody said that to him and tom d hall has songs that have lasted decades he says all we're writing about is love fear hate and anxiety and then some other topics but really those are the things and it's like okay so check this out i've been in jerry reed lately and i i discovered this jerry reed song really because i um I mean, he's not only one of the best guitar players of all time, but Smoking the Bandit, I just saw it for the first time. And I mean, my God, that movie, it's insane. Uh, it's beautiful. It really is. And you learn something new each time you watch it. There's a there's a song Jerry Reed cut called Plastic Saddle, which he didn't write. But in the, in the chorus of the song, I ain't always right, but I ain't never wrong. Okay, so check this out. I'm a huge Grateful Dead fan, as we all know. And in the chorus of Scarlet Begonias... Um, I ain't often right, but I have never been wrong. Seldom turns out the way it does in a song. Oh my God. So let's even go back to Plastic Saddle. I ain't always right, but I ain't never wrong. I know the words to the tune before you sang your song. So not only does the Scarlet Begonia's lyric take the same concept of I ain't always right, but I never wrong, and even rhymes it with the same word song. And so chronologically, I had to do some research on this. Plastic Saddle came out before Scarlet Begonias. And we all know, well, actually, we might not all know this, but the Grateful Dead are heavily influenced by country music. And their most successful studio efforts were very much Americana, cosmic country, um, Western-influenced motifs. So I have to think that Robert Hunter and Jerry Garcia, I'm not saying they stole this. I'm not saying that at all. And it'd be, it's, it's deeper than that. It's the fact that they were listening to most likely this song, which was a successful song, and it registered in their subconscious, and it it stayed there, as the truth does. And it looks like the truth registers in about five or six genres. Love, hate, fear, anxiety, truth, those things. It's a beautiful thing. I do not think reinventing the wheel is our job as creators. I think if you're listening to a song, and if you can recall three of your favorite songs right now, the genre, the, uh, the the motif, the concept that they're talking about, they're probably not too avant-garde. There's probably not a whole lot of abstraction going on. Abstract thought might manifest in the metaphor of a song. It might manifest in the arrangement of the song and production. But it seems like we're all in tune on this vibration, this simplicity that is actually quite profound. 
And it makes sense because we kind of all love similar things in life. Willie Nelson said that too. He said that was one of the one things he's learned about traveling over the world is that a lot of us are the same. Who doesn't love natural sunlight? Who doesn't love a nice candle by their bedside? It can even be a non-scented, non-GMO candle, right? It doesn't matter. It could be an abstract candle. I think a lot of us love the same things. And by no surprise, it's within music. And so I've had this great epiphany lately where it's like, oh my God, all the songs I've been trying to write in the past and release have like, I've been trying to like change the world. And it's like, well, no, really, I'm just trying to convince my ego that I can like do something that's complex. Johnny Cash said, write with simplicity. Simplicity is complex. And oh my God, is that so real? So here is, here's where I'm at with y'all today on October 22nd, uh, 2020, is that I think simplicity is key. And I think we don't need to reinvent the wheel. And I think we need to have a clear vision in our heads before we go and make a move and uh, do anything that's out of a, a creative effort. Um, I really think simplicity is a thing. And the only thing that would tell you otherwise is is your ego. And so if you're feeling like, uh, in, in, please, please feel free to uh, combat this uh, concept that I have, because it's in a recent epiphany that I've been kind of dealing with in my revolving doors of, of consciousness. Um, I think simplicity is key. And I think you need to lean in to who you are as a person. Take a personality test at uh, discovermyself.com. I had some very extremely fascinating results. <laughs> and uh, some of which I'm happy with, some of which I'm not. You know, we're human. We have our lives. Um, that's where I'm at, y'all. Stay simple. Stay persistent. Stay patient. Stay positive. Stay cosmic. There's always a moment that I hope for when I'm seeing a performance live that the right stage, the right place in the right time, the right energy meets the person that has a lot to say, has put in the hours, and is inspired. I think that creates truth, creates beauty, and it creates a lasting memory. Last year when I saw Kaylee Hammock play at the Hutton Hotel, in a room full of industry attendants and other artists wanting to say something of their own as well, because it was around, Kaylee took to the stage in a way that was memorable. That's what it's all about. She did it like it was her job to do it. It was beautiful. I became a fan instantly. Turns out she uh, has a similar story to me playing down on Broadway. Uh, she also loves Charles Bukowski. She loves birds, loves plants. And we also talk about social media and we talk about her fantastic new record. Uh, she just released in August and how uh, being nominated for new female artist of the year at the ACM award. That is it's a beautiful thing. With no further ado, Miss Kaylee Hammack. So I ordered ChapStick on Amazon, and that was it. That's all I ordered was, was ChapStick. And I wanted to see like if they would deliver like the smallest package possible. Because like it's at the point now where I think Amazon's going to be around for the rest of our lives. Oh, yeah. Um, so I ordered ChapStick, and they got it to my house in like 27 minutes. And that really freaks me out for some reason. I don't know why, but my face is moisturized. My lips are moisturized. But hey, thank you, Jeff Bezos. I appreciate it. You know, Jeff Bezos makes so much money. So much. It's something ridiculous where it's like $5,000 a second. Yeah. He, um, I've read something the other day. It's kind of, it's very funny that these, um, big moguls, you know, that are running all of this, uh, we pay them so much for convenience's sake. Right. I mean, I, I just wish, you know, that I had like put stock into Amazon and I wish I'd put stock into uh, if Zoom has stock. Because, oh my God, what is the dude that made Zoom? What is he doing now? 
Okay. This is like the highlight of his life. I think about that guy all the time. I really do. That's so funny you say that. I think about that guy all the time. So that guy just put out a, uh, I forget his name. He put out a press release talking about how he's depressed, how he's had sleep deprivation, 30 plus meetings a day. He's sleeping oh God, like three hours. But it's like, that's the thing that's like happening. How old are you? I'm 26. God, I have to think about it. <laughs> no, no. 26 is fine. I'm 25. I feel like we're like a, we're in like a slight zoom of our lives where it's like, now is a great time to start making things happen. Yep. And uh, if that guy's sleeping three, four hours a night and he's making it happen, then there's no excuse why <clears throat> I can't make it happen. Um, Very true. But indeed, uh, not investing in Amazon is not a fault of your own. I think, I think uh, Amazon went public far before we knew about stocks or anything like that. Yeah. I, uh, it's one of those things. I have one uncle that is rich in my family and he so went what? into stock marketing and stuff and just placed the right money in the right places. And I mean, he's never really had to work. Uh, he's no just way. a smart guy that figured out the stock market. And I'm like, God, I should have spent more time with him when I lived back home. <laughs> I feel like you're I feel like you're a very focused and driven person though. So I feel like you don't you don't spend a lot of time focusing and this is all just, you know, me trying to kind of understand who you are never having really spent time with you before. Um, yeah. Very focused and driven. And like you understand exactly what you want to do. So I imagine when you were like developing as you still um but when you really were you weren't like trying to like figure out stocks or anything like that. No. Um, no, I was trying to figure out how you build a business. Ever since I was a little kid, I've always you wanted do. to have a big business, you know? Yeah. I was 12 when I uh, <laughs> I took over this extra bedroom in the basement of our house and I built uh, two different businesses out of it to make money literally off of my family. I wrapped all the gift, uh, the gifts every Christmas and birthdays, anything, and I would like charge them by the foot of each piece of wrapping paper. I was a stickler. I was just trying to make money because I knew that when I graduated, I knew I wanted to move to Nashville. And at first, you know, it was really because I loved medicine. I was obsessed with medicine as a kid. I wanted to be a healer more than anything else in the world. Um, and a businesswoman, you know, I wanted to... Both those have, things. Still. What'd you say? You're still that in some way. Oh, yeah. Um, the funny thing is music kind of found me uh, where I was trying to find medicine. And so I just knew I wanted to uh, be able to graduate from Vanderbilt if I went into medicine. Uh -huh. And so I'd always planned on moving to Nashville. Yeah. And then uh, at 13, my dad heard me singing along uh, to a TV show, a movie. And um, yeah, he was like, you need to go sing. And anyways, he's the one that kind of peer pressured me into singing. I flopped the first time on stage. Um, How so? Because so? I love messing up on stage. Even still to this day, I think it's really fun. Um, Okay. That's, it's a different thing <laughs> when you like, I feel like one, if I mess up now, it's just funny. Right. And like fans later, like, remember that time you got on stage in Milwaukee and you said, hello, Chicago. And I'm like, yeah, it, yeah, we most definitely. We were in uh, St. Louis last year and it was with my friend Orville Peck, who I just love. And, yeah. Uh, we opened up three shows for him and it was um, Kansas City, St. Louis, and then, some, uh, and then somewhere else in Missouri. And each night, I, I messed up each city. And then based, the last night, someone said, I've seen you three nights in a row. You messed up each city. Get yourself a damn smartphone. <laughs> no, just write it on the set list. Just write it on the set list. So I, oh Lord, can I jump to that story or do you want to keep? No, no. 
<laughs> I, um, I'm really bad about, I'm a rambling woman. I like to uh, kind of look at conversations as lily pads and we're just frogs jump from, from one to another. And whichever one we like, we can sit at for a while. Then we can jump to another one. <laughs> we may forget which one we were originally on, but it's fine. Life is just a lake. Um, oh, lake. That is a, that legitimately is like a, I feel like that's a Don Henley song or like a Don Gibson song that was never written. Or no, okay. not Don Gibson. I'm thinking of three Dons in a row. Who is Tulsa Time? Don Williams. Don Williams. Isn't that it? Yeah. Don Williams, man. Love that man. Um, but. What was I saying? Oh, lily pad of uh, Hello Chicago. So I, it was my first tour ever. Like my first official tour is like a label, you know, a sign label artist and, you know, someone else driving instead of me, you know, and um, wow. it was big for me. So I was open up for Lanco and the tour was starting in Chicago, Milwaukee, third night in Chicago again at a different venue. So for two weeks, we were rehearsing and I was so excited. This was my first show that I was going to get to play mostly all original music because I used to be a cover band singer for four or eight hours a day downtown. Same That's here. where I knew about you. But anyways, oh, really? um, so <laughs> I've been practicing for two straight weeks. You know, uh, my team said, just practice talking on stage. So every single day in rehearsal, I'm wearing my high heels. I'm, you know, going through the motions and I'd start at hello, Chicago, you know? So I get sick as a dog right before this happens because I have this innate ability to worry so much that I get myself sick before any big opportunity. I know, marvelous gift. <laughs> Anyways, I, uh, I get on the road and I am so sick. I mean, I'm vomiting in a trash can sitting in an office chair in the hotel room. And I was like, I'm fine. I'll just go on stage like this. It's fine. And uh, my day-to-day manager is curling my hair. And I'm like, I just have to get through this show. So I get on stage. They'd sent a rock doc to see me. And he had shot me up with something. I have no clue what he gave me. But I was just fuzzy. I felt fuzzy. And so I'm getting on stage at the rave in Milwaukee. And uh, I just go, hello, Chicago. And uh, I sat there and I had my in-ears in, you know, we can't hear anything with the in-ears in. So I just sat there and I was like, hmm, must not be a big crowd. And I look out there and I'm like, there is a big crowd. Why did they not show? My God, this is Milwaukee. (laughs) And they hate Chicago and Milwaukee. These two cities hate each other. They're too close to hate each other. That doesn't work. You know what? The thing is, it turned out that one really embarrassing moment on stage turned out to be an inside joke that every single time I play in Milwaukee, there's a group of about probably five, 10, sometimes 20 people that are like, hello, Chicago. And I'm like, me and you, we go way back. I know it. <laughs> Why is the rave so weird? So the rave was the first place that I accidentally ever took hallucinogenic drugs. So oh God, I, that was not the place. No. So I was also fuzzy at my performance at the rate. Um, I didn't say hello to anybody that night. That was a crazy. <laughs> that was also the night Kobe Bryant retired. So I was also like very sad. Yeah. Um, Cause he's no he's absolute greatness. But the, I found out like um, we were, we had this green room, you know, the green room's fantastic. Oh there. yeah. Prince. Uh, it was all because of Prince. What do you mean? Uh, the tapestries and everything. Are you in the green room with the tapestries? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Prince tapestries? Really? 
Yeah. So the reason that room was decorated the way it was, was the last show that Prince did at the rave. He, um, every time they came in for a green room, they wanted a specialty green room. You know, they had to have it to a certain standard. So the bookers had to go in and tape all of this tapestry up. If you go in there, it feels like you've just fallen back into the seventies. And then there's a room that has tapestries and they call it the pillow room. And there's just a bunch of pillows. But, uh, I, I don't know how you would clean all those pillows every night before the next band comes. So I would suggest not ever going in the pillow room just to be safe. Uh, but yeah, that's why the back room was like that. Cause I was like, why is this like this? <laughs> why is this like this? I asked that question probably 73 times a day. Oh my God. It, it's that term can relate to so many situations in my life and the world. I mean, oh my God, it's just all of it, you know? Um, so the rave, I'm glad that, uh, the rave was a weird place for you as it was for me. Oh, that's good to know. It's a weird city that, you know, so right hey. the streets were Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, uh, <laughs> I swear in that hotel. I know. Um, Trust okay. me. I was sick as a dog in that hotel and no one told me that that was the hotel in which, uh, it's called the ambassador's hotel. It's right across from this place we're talking about called the rave in Milwaukee. And, um, they said that there used to be old tunnels that ran from the rave to the ambassador's hotel. But the last owners before the company, the bookers that own it now that made it into a um, concert venue, the people before somehow rebuilt the basement and they cannot find where like three of the tunnels go. They can't find where the tunnels start or where they end. And um, anyway, so we're staying at the ambassador hotel and it's very much like I'd say like Art Deco, 50s, 60s vibe on the inside. And uh, I was on the fifth level, the fifth floor. And uh, yeah, I was just living life. And then the next day they were like, you know that Jeffrey Dahmer ate someone in the room 504. Or what? it was 503 or 504. And uh, I I was like, really? Wow, I was in 506. That's kind of creepy. No one told me that. And they were like, well, you know that when they redid the hotel, they swapped all the rooms. So you may have stayed in that room. And I was like, well, you know, if, if his ghost was with me, we watched a really great movie on Lifetime. And, um, I think he enjoyed it then. I knew you watched Lifetime movies. I figured that was part of it. No, that was a joke. Yeah. I couldn't come up with anything else. I'm not a Lifetime person. I lied. I'm a liar. If you're going to pick a, well, we're all kind of liars to some degree. Uh, if you're going to pick a, if you're going to pick a network to make fun of, I think Lifetime happened. Yeah. And Hallmark. I'm sorry. My mom loves the Hallmark channel. Loves it. And I just can't do it. But we all have our guilty pleasures. That's her guilty pleasure. So wait, I'm taking your guilty pleasure are uh, plants, it seems. How did you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm obsessed with plants. I uh, have a fascination with watching things grow. I like knowing that I can grow things. Um, yeah. and I think that's why I love music so much is because I have to, f- I have to be working at something where I see the fruition come to be. Right. So what do you, so do you mean that you have a lot of patience then? Oh yeah. I mean, I don't think that I have enough to be yeah. honest. Of course. Um, but I think that God sent me a lot of different, uh, moments and situations in which I had to learn patience. This whole career is, um, hurry up and wait. Mm-hmm. And hope they don't forget about you when you're waiting, you know? <laughs> oh, so that's a real fear. The fear of of being forgotten and not being able to carry on a conversation with people who were listening to you to yesterday. I feel like you and I are very young though to to that 
for that to be happening to us, but we're not young enough for us to not be worried about it. Yeah. You know, I, um, you know, I actually was thinking about something the other day, uh, with our age group, you know, I remember, uh, I think it was first grade when they rolled the TV in and we watched one of a man jump from the second tower at nine 11. And I remember watching that. And I remember listening to my parents argue about, you know, when the just economy dropped, you know, are we going to be able to pay our bills, blah, blah, blah. And after talking to some other people our age, I'm kind of starting to realize, I think our generation seems to have some type of um, undercover anxiety when it comes to money, purpose. Um, I think that we were shown at a very young age with something like that happening in our life that life is real short and you have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. I think that's why I meet so many people around this age that have struggled so hard with the thought of, have I done enough? Am I going to do enough? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder, that's just a theory of mine, but... um, I love to ask that theory. Okay. So I think part of that is uh, if you look at everyone born past 1994, something like in all categories of cutting yourself, of having anxiety, having depression, suicide, uh, prescriptions to uh, drugs that reduce depression and anxiety, et cetera, reduce cortisol levels. Pretty much from like 94 onward, everything is up at least 15%, sometimes in the category of more than 60%, either of those categories. I don't want to speak out of term, and I'm good with numbers some days, but on some days I'm bad. Um, I'm with you. I think a lot of that is that social media. I think it's a lot oh, of... Yeah having our phone here and that's already like a phantom limb and it's telling us all these uh telling us that certain things are important that our parents would not have thought were important years ago and um how our face looks at all moments in time how our hair looks on moments in time yeah did i post today did i post at the right time well the thing is with all of that is okay what did we do before we had social media like what did we do when we wanted to document stuff We'd scrapbook the shit, you know, and it would be funny pictures. It would be a photo album of random film that came back half damaged, you know, when you went to Kodak and got the pictures printed and you had to wait two to three weeks, you know. But what it is, is it was this intimate thing in which you could collect and reminisce on all of your memories at any point. And it became this judgment-free memory collection, you know, and you could show it to who you wanted when they came over. But right now I think that children, especially my nieces, I worry so much for young boys and girls, um, in this generation because yeah, we grew up with the internet. You know, my dad had a, I think they had a 1994 Microsoft word. It was the same age as me. Um, Microsoft word, Microsoft computer, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, um, the thing is though, we still, we had one computer for the whole family. Yeah, And now, you know, I sit here and I'll even scroll through, say, TikTok. And I think that, you know, with all this to say, I think that social media could be a beautiful thing if it wasn't monetized. That's where all of the warped uh, elements start coming into play. You're talking about when they sell our data to advertisers? Yes. Because what it does is it shapes the entire algorithm to sell you something and... The thing is with all of this, pushing towards advertisement, towards monetization of all of these different um, social media sites and how far it's went, it has warped this algorithm and they've proven it, that it will send you things that you like 
and it'll make you think, um, oh, I like this, I like this, add this, like this, like this, comment. And then they'll send you one thing that angers you. Oh, yeah. So badly that then you keep coming back to it and you just got to keep ranting. And then they'll send you some more that you like. And then they'll send you an advertisement related to something you liked two days ago. And, you know, I think that that warps our older generations, that warps all of us. And um, it moves us in different ways, whether it's negative or positive. But with children, I think that. It's like we've created this scrapbook that is open for everyone at any time to go back and to rip apart or somehow criticize. And no child should be put in that place. No child should have to think that they have to be picture perfect ever. I mean, nonetheless, at 13 years old, when your body is changing, who is cute at 13, 14, 15? And these are the people that are getting impacted by all these pictures that's all Photoshopped and perfect and showing them exactly what they don't think that they can be. It's it, Well, the thing too is it's creating a reality that is now almost the size of our, of our high resolution reality that we're in. Mm-hmm. That's just as real, except it's in it's in the ones and zeros. It's in a it's in a digital realm, and there's levels of perfection and aesthetic that are not achievable by humans. Yeah. Uh, and we're comparing ourselves to those because we've never, frankly, you know, it's our first generation. I think we're learning things. We're we're not even on the highway yet. We're still on the on still on the on ramp. I think. Oh, for sure. Off. We're just starting to speed up. Yeah, which is always the scariest part for me. I'm always afraid. That some Honda CRV is going to hit me in my Toyota so, to slide me on over. My nine-year-old <laughs> sister, her and TikTok, man, it's it's crazy. So I live in a house right behind my parents, and so I'm very intimately with my sisters every day. And um, to see how social media affects them is wild. It freaks me out. It freaks yeah. me out heavy, especially it's different with women. It's different for women than it is men. Yeah. Even my seven-year-old niece seems to already have body insecurities. And I'm like, you're seven. You're You're seven. seven." Like, I I remember at seven years old, still going buck naked sometimes to jump in the pool because back then there wasn't a sexualized thing around me. There wasn't anything that made me feel like that was wrong. And yeah, it just, I hate seeing her already feeling insecure in her body. And she's a seven-year-old. That's insane. That is literally insane. Do you think it's going to make people smarter in terms of creative endeavors? Um, sorry, I keep sitting cross-legged and then I'm like, I can't feel my leg. Um, you gotta drink some more water. I think, I think honestly, uh, yes, I do need to drink more water. And I do believe that the generations to come, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's dumbing them down. It's dumbing, dumbing them down. It's not in any capacity. Do you know that your children are taking in more information oh, than you probably had in 20 years, oh, you know, because yeah. now we have minute long. I mean, TikTok can be one of these things that um, it's just like another social media. It can warp you in some capacity. And whether you want it to or not, it does warp you to some, some degree. 100%. And uh, the thing is with all of that, I've started trying to fix my algorithm by only liking things that are positive. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to force myself to only like things that, you know, if it's a joke, if it's about somebody else, it doesn't, that's not funny to me. You know, I need to cut out any negativity of that because every time someone makes fun of a celebrity for something, I turn around and I go, how would I feel if someone said that? How would I feel if someone took that one picture of me Empathy. and then made a meme about it and put it online? How would I feel? I, w- I wouldn't like that at all. So I'm not going to do that to them. That's beautiful. 
Well, there actually, that's all rooted down into a Bukowski. It's my favorite poem from him. Mm. And um, which one's called uh, This One's for Snaggletooth? Oh, yeah. Come on. Talking about I, that girl. Oh, my God. Okay. I actually had it pulled up if we wanted to talk about Bukowski because I just I, gave my last uh, Love as a Dog from Hell book away. I give Bukowski books away like, yeah, so do I. Like water. It's a great thing to give away. I would suggest to anyone, any book that you love that shaped you or made you someone different, you know, has formed you in some way, give it to people. Yes. If it makes you happy, if it inspires you, buy five of them. And every time a friend comes over, give them one. I think one of the most beautiful things as creators we can give one another is words and inspiration. Oh my God. Yeah. Without question. I mean, so the way that Bukowski was turned on to me was someone gave me a dog from hell. Um, oh, I love that. That was your first one. Cause that's my all time favorite. Is that, why is that one your all time? Like, I'm, gl- I'm glad that you're also not saying that his fiction is your all time favorite. Cause when people say his fiction is his best, I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. So, but why dog from hell? Is there a specific reason why? Is it the way that it, that it reads or what is it? Yes. Uh, the reason love is a dog from hell is probably one of my favorite, um, collections of his is it's one of the only ones that goes through a certain amount of time. Uh, I believe it's from 71 to 74, okay. I think if I'm correct. But, um, The thing is, it goes through his life and that's, it inspired me to start writing that way. Um, I have a 1957 typewriter that I write one page every day and I put it in a drawer. And I feel like when I'm reading the poems in that book specifically, it feels as if I'm getting to know him. And what's really beautiful about it is that there's so many different women that come along in his life. You know, some stay for one night, some, some stay for a few weeks. But the thing is, as you keep going, you realize there's one or two women that I realize impacted him. And I loved being able to read a book like that because for people that don't really read Bukowski, um, he's very crass, he's caustic, he's vulgar to, to almost an aggravated degree. He means to be. He does not shy away from this. He knows it bothers people, so he hits it there, you know? But the thing is, he's able to look in these you know, in the gutters, in the alleys of America and his life and his situations. And he was able to dwell there until he found some beautiful universal truth in the midst of the ugly. And that is what I love the most about him is because I read his books and I see these ugly pictures and I find a beautiful message behind it. Oh, he hits it so fast. And I he, you can tell that you can like hear when somebody writes a lot because it kind of comes from like their own world almost. Like if you listen to like, um, like Shel Silverstein songs. Oh yeah. Weird man. Amazing man. But weird man when it comes to the music specifically. Oh, I mean, yeah. Insane. Oddly so strange. I mean, come on. I mean, his picture on the back of his books growing up, I never realized until I was an adult and I bought a book for one of my friend's babies. I was like, this guy looks psycho on the back. He's all, he's all bald and friendly when we're young. And then like you look at him as an old person, you're like, oh, you, you look a little different than oh. I remembered. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm, 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 no, I'm, no, that's all I'm saying with it. You know, so like um, there's this interview of Bukowski where it's like... um. He, someone asked him, he's like smoking one of those hand-rolled like Indian cigarettes that he loved. And uh, he's like, what is love? Or she was like, what is love? The interviewer. 
and uh, the interviewee being Bukowski. He goes, uh, he, he, he like kind of rambles for a second. He's like, love. Love is like, and he gives all these metaphors. Then he, then he ultimately, like, as he's like improvising and talking, I believe he says, love is the first burning light of the morning sun. Ah, uh, like my, like he just came up with that in, in 120 seconds. Like that's a guy who is constantly in tune and, and he's just writing. He's a scroll. Uh, the, that, that, I guess, description made me think of, do you know the Roger Miller song, Little Green Apples? I love that. Yeah. That, Caitlin Smith turned me on that song. I, I love Roger Miller, but I'd never heard that specific song. Specific. I can't say anything. It's like, as soon as I get on a podcast, I'm illiterate. Um, but anyways, with all that said, that song to me, the verses, that's what love feels like. Like, that's what true love is. Like, and I wake up in the morning with my head down in my eyes and she says, hi. Mm. Like, I, you know, I look across, she smiles and I look across the table at my morning sun. And if that's not love, then God didn't make little green apples. Like it just, it's the most beautiful thing. And it don't rain in Indianapolis in the summertime. And there's no such thing as Dr. Seuss or nursery rhymes or mother goose. Um, or what is it? Disneyland, Dr. Seuss, mother rhymes. Uh, I'm messing up all my words now, but yeah, go look it up. <laughs> uh, there is a, uh, there are some very few tenacious characters like Roger Miller, like such as like Jerry Reed as well. Oh uh, yeah. But Roger Miller really topped them all. It, there wasn't like a female, the only person I can think of, it would be Dolly Parton, who kind of had like a theatrical, um, in terms of a classic sense, like kind mm-hmm. of a theatrical character uh, thing that was going on where only they could sing their songs. There wasn't really like a female Roger Miller or anything like that, was there? Was no. Oh. And what I really love about Roger is the scatting too. I love, I used to listen to Ella Fitzgerald so much just because oh. of the way she scatted. Because what I really love about a person, I mean, the reason I got into country music, at first it was Patsy Cline and Johnny Cash and oh. Tammy Wynette and Loretta Lynn on this info commercial about... Uh, you know, a CD packet of the great golden classics of country music, only twenty four ninety five plus shipping and handling or whatever, you know? And um, I was watching it and I was just like, wow, that's a great voice. Wow, that's a great voice. But Patsy stood out because to me, her voice sounds similar to like a viola of sorts. The way that she was able to pull on and off a vibrato, like it was tremolo, yeah. like it, it was unreal what she was able to do with her voice and the way she worked it. I was like, this is a, a brass instrument. This is not a voice, you know? So open. Yeah. There was something about it. And, um, Johnny Cash, you know, I heard this timbre in his voice that it just, it sounded unlike something else I knew, that baritone kind of voice. I feel like he created almost a little subgenre in country at the time because of his voice and the way he's told his stories. Mm. But um, I just really love the people like that, that they treated their voice as if it was an instrument and they used it to get their point across. Uh, Roger Miller, him scatting, different things like that. It just... I've always been so impressed by that. And so I just obsess about like, when I listen to music, I like to learn the guitar parts instead or learn how to sing the bass part, you know, just do it an octave higher, whatever it is, because you find irregularities in that. And then you're able to translate them into vocal parts because the way I would do a vocal riff is nothing 
uh, it's not going to be alike to how you would go about doing a riff. You know, from A to B, us getting to the same note from the same note, we're going to take different paths. Yes, we are. So my thing is, if I listen through and I find your little riffs and I learn how to sing it, then I go, oh, I would have never thought to go to that minor there. That's kind of cool. Let me translate that into vocal. And man, I think the Beach Boys did it best. I mean, they brought in animals and listened to them. I can't tell you how many days I've sat in my backyard and just sang back to my birds. I have a bunch of birds that come into my yard and I'll just listen to them and they make songs, they make melodies. And then I take them and I try to write around them. Have you gotten anything solid from the birds? I wouldn't consider solid. It's something I've started doing about a month ago. I've just started recording little ideas. Um, CD, if you ask me. What'd you say? Sounds pretty seedy. Yeah, it's very seedy. Um, so aside from my terrible joke, I'd love to hear about that Bukowski poem. Oh, the Bukowski poem. Okay, I pulled it up on my iPad because I was like, I want to read this so that anyone listening, if you've never read Bukowski and you, you're like, yeah, I'm not going to get that. Uh, I want you to just hear this because to me, this is what beauty, this is what beauty should be. I think that this is the most beautiful form of beauty. Oh. Okay, this one's called One for Old Snaggletooth. I know a woman who keeps buying puzzles, Chinese puzzles, blocks, wires, pieces that finally fit into some order. She works it out mathematically. She solves all her puzzles, lives down by the sea, and puts sugar out for the ants, and believes ultimately in a better world. Her hair is white, she seldom combs it, and her teeth are snaggled, and she wears loose, shapeless coveralls coveralls over a body most women would wish that they had. Mm. For many years, she irritated me. What I considered her eccentricities, I can't say that word, like soaking eggshells in water to feed the plants so that they get calcium. But finally, when I think of her life and I compare it to other lives, more dazzling, original, and beautiful, I realize that she has hurt fewer people than anybody I know. And by hurt, I mean simply hurt. She's had some terrible times times when maybe I should have helped her more for she is the mother of my only child and we were once great lovers but she has come through like I said and she has hurt fewer people than anybody that I know and if you look at it like that well she's created a better world she has won Francis this poem is for you yeah also I just read down here uh, love is a dog from hell is actually poems from 74 to 77 but I, to me, that was what, that is one that really stood out to me. And I started thinking about it. To me, I believe that that is how God would want me to live, is to hurt the least amount of people that I can. And that is what can make me beautiful. You know what I mean? Yeah. I see that as true beauty in a person when they have the kindness that a lot of people don't these days. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, you seem to have a really high level of empathy. A little too much sometimes, I think. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, I'm sure like if you lean too far in any way, like being a human, like you're going to have, you're going to have some friction of sorts. That's oh, yeah. cool, man. I don't know if Charles Bukowski had a very weird way of, of employing empathy into the world, manifesting his empathy. Um, oh, yeah. My God, man. If you watch those videos of like him and Linda where he's like kicking her in the face. <sighs> I haven't seen that. Oh, my gosh. There's a great like... um. He, when he went to Europe, uh, Shakespeare never did this. Have you seen that? No, I have not. Which is so bold. Shakespeare never did this. It's so cool. It's him going to Germany. And it's him going around doing book tours, you know, because his father was German. 
and uh, his dad beat him. So he had a really terrible relationship mm-hmm. with his father. It was pretty much uh, dismissing German culture as a whole. Um, and German culture is beautiful. Um, and so he was, he went over there and the people loved him. And it's this crazy, uh, like this, oh, I guess it would be before a vlog. <laughs> it wasn't for like David Dobrik. It yeah. Lipowski doing him. And it's, it's him like going around these photos. It's him, Linda, and a photographer following him around. And I think the guy who found Black Sparrow Press which is, um, I forget his name. He's like Bukowski's like main investor. I guess it was like his yeah. name. Guy. Um, and it's crazy, man. Just to, he, he was always writing. He wrote all the time and he was always drinking and he was always smoking. And he kind of like lived in this like cycle of just creation always, which I'm kind of secretly very envious of. Yeah. I feel you. You know what I'm also, I feel like he had this beautiful, beautiful in-depth knowledge of all these different composers that I would have never listened to. Oh, yeah. Except then I learned them through him. Like now one of my favorite composers, he actually has a poem about him. And um, I think the one that that's in is uh, You Get So Lonely Sometimes It Just Makes Sense. It makes sense. Um, in that one, he talks about Alexander Borden. And how he was a chemist and he was well known for that, but he liked to write music because it helped him and it helped soothe his mind. And his wife would take those papers that he would write his orchestras on and use it to line the kitty litter pans and to put it in the trash. And um, I just thought that was so funny. I feel like Bukowski has really introduced me to a lot of composers because he did... He did the trick. He did the trick. For me, I, I want to learn more about great people if right. I am first introduced to them through intimate, casual ways. Like getting to read this poem about Alexander Borden and kind of about how he couldn't sleep at night and there was always people coming and going from his house and you know then go listen to Prince Igor which is one of his best probably pieces of music it is so beautiful it feels like it takes me somewhere completely different than anywhere else I've ever been and the thing is I, I would have never really dove into that composer unless I had known kind of the the dirtier, I guess, shadow behind the spotlight he was in, you know? Uh-huh. Um, if I hadn't seen that, I don't know if I'd be as interested in the person in the spotlight. I, I like to see the little broken parts. I feel like that's where you really find beauty. What do you mean? But can you expand on that? Because I feel like there's something nice to be had in that sentence. I think, you know, the... There's actually a Japanese custom in which I can't tell you the name of it right now, and I'm sorry for that, but uh, when a piece of pottery would be broken, they would take gold and they would melt it into the cracks and they would make it something even more beautiful from the broken pieces. Hmm. And um, I love that idea of repurposing the negative situations that you've been given oh. and, and finding a way to make it positive. To me, that is truly spinning gold out of nothing. That is magic to me, is what we get to do every day. Perspective. Yeah. Perspective's key. Yeah. Wow. What you're talking about sounds a whole lot lot like awareness to me, where it sounds like you try, you experience sensory inputs in life, right? You'll, uh, something shitty happens or you're jealous of somebody. I'm not sure if you get jealous of people. Um, I get jealous of work situations, of work opportunities. Opportunities are absolutely... Oh, for sure. Yeah, you, 
because our business is fraught with ample opportunity with a lot of interesting outcomes that don't always, that are always, or like they're not always in parallel as to how big the opportunity seemed on the onset. Um, but seeing other people's opportunities 17 times a day on Instagram, that's a real thing. Um, taking that perspective. So the thing that can happen is that you can like, you can decide to react to your emotions and you can decide to react to the things in your life. Or you like literally uh, can actually decide to act, which is to take time and to try to see the yin and yang that is influential in any situation, whether it's yours or your birds or Bukowski's or somebody else's. Um, and that's a beautiful thing that you let on. My gosh. So is that something that you found yourself recently adapting into your life or you kind of always been on the optimistic, on the sunny side of life, if you will, as Mother Maybelle Carter called it. Uh, no, um, not at all. <laughs> that was a great no, though. That was a uh, no. No, <laughs> no. Um, I was a kid that uh, I've always kind of struggled with depression, um, and you know, I I still do to this day. Uh, it's something that comes on and off. It's like a real bad cold spell in the weather that hits me sometimes and I can't shake off. But um, the thing is, knowing that, uh, all of this kind of started when I was young. I had a medical scare and um, I had a two-pound tumor that they thought was cancerous in my paraspinal muscles. I lost um, all of my nerve uh, feeling from the hips down and um, started to kind of lose the ability to walk. And I went from a super athletic person to not being able to do anything. So we went into the doctor, um, they took the tumor out. And before all the tests came back, I was in this very angry, angry conversation with God. Um, I felt that I had lived my way right. I thought that I had done a lot at that age to help others and do all the things that I felt that good-minded, godly people did. And at that point, I really hated them. I was so mad at them. After I'd done all this for you, wow. give me cancer. And I mean, I was mad. And I remember my daddy telling me right before I went under that you cannot go under, you can't go into the surgery angry with God, so you better figure it out. And I talked to God and I was like, you know what? I'm sick and tired of fighting you. You took everything away from me in this moment. And I, am, I can't fight it anymore. Like I'm too sick to fight. So just take it and whatever you're going to do, I guess you're going to do it whether I like it or not. So do it. And three days later, they called and said that somehow the test had all come back clear and that I was good. It was a fluke of a situation. And, uh, you know, I did MRIs every year, holding my breath, praying that it wouldn't come back and it still hasn't at 26. Um, so 10 years, you know, but the thing is that was kind of my first, uh, my first very angry moment of not wanting to accept the change that was forced upon me. Sure. And what I kind of learned in that time was I oh. aggravated and drew out the healing process for myself spiritually, emotionally, and physically by fighting like hell the whole time to try and not change anything at all because I wasn't ready to be this new person going through this situation. Um, then in 2017, actually, it's very funny we're talking today because today is the three-year anniversary of it. But uh, three years ago, I lost my house in a house fire while on a writer retreat. And uh, I, just remember, I just remember how it felt like this huge curse. And it turned out to be the biggest blessing in my life because as someone that has suffered with depression 
Mm. It is so funny how I can have such a loving family, Mm. so many good friends, Mm. and still be able to go home and tell myself that no one loves me. Oh my God, come on. Yeah. You know, and um, that fire, it kind of like, it made me realize people do love you. People love you. And it, it just made me feel so much less alone than I never felt in my entire life. And um, in that moment, it was three days after the fire, I was sitting on my front porch. It was a Sunday morning. And normally every Sunday morning, I'd have about an hour or two that I'd spend with God just reading the Bible. I love to read the Bible and just, just sit and talk to him like he's a friend. Nobody else, just me and him. And um, that morning I realized instead of sitting out there drinking my coffee, reading my Bible... I was sitting on that front porch step saying goodbye to all the things that didn't make it through the fire that were scattered on the front lawn that I just, I hadn't thrown in the trash yet. I couldn't give it up yet. And I I walked around. This was before Marie Kondo told us to do it. So I was on the right path because I walked around and I thanked every single thing I had. And I just told it, thank you. And I told it that I was sorry I couldn't, I couldn't save it. And um, after I'd done that, I was like, you know what, God? I, you've, you have slapped me upside the head with a curveball before, and then you got me through it. So I'm, I'm just giving this up. You take me where you want to go, buddy. I'm ready. Just take me because I can't stay here. And my dad called 10 minutes later. He'd been driving into Nashville. He got uh, turned around on a side road, found a little rental house. The lady that owned this place, um, she had lost her home in Hurricane Katrina. When she found out that I only had enough for half of the security deposit, she told me to go ahead and move in and I could pay when I, when I could because what? everyone needs a second chance at rebuilding oh. their life. That, the thing is, what I'm trying to say through all this is every moment in which I have felt like something awful has happened to me. I've sat down with myself and thought, okay, what can I do from here? Am I going to just let this become a bitter thing that I hold on to and I let poison myself? Or do I go, hey, you can still rebuild. You know, isn't it kind of funny that shit happens to all of us? You know, um, I, I always wanted to be able to connect with people. And I think every hardship I've been given right. has helped me learn how to connect with someone else that has went through a hardship similar. So it's all more of a blessing than anything has ever been a curse in my life. So I can't not be grateful. No. And everything that's hard for you or, or goes into the folder that is known as the grind or anything like that, all those words, they become your resume. And they become yeah. part of the reason why people actually can relate to you and, and find meaning in what you do. And therefore, they find meaning in their own lives. Yeah. Isn't it a beautiful thing when someone messages you and they say something like, hey, this song really got me through this. Like, you know, this song connected with me. I really, this song got me through a breakup as well, similar to that. It's anytime someone connects to a song and says it helped them through whatever it is, that means that every broken moment that led up to that moment of writing about that story, that hurt, that made it gold. Mm. That meant I could find a silver lining and make it gold. Like that is a beautiful thing. And Audrey May once said to me in a write, it was like 10 p.m. and we were drinking at her house and she just looked over at me and she said, music can be medicine and you better make it that way. Oh, that's and I. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, music is medicine. My whole life, all I've wanted to do is be a healer. That was the main thing. I just want to help, want to heal people. And, you know, 
sickly, I want to heal myself, you know, through this. And I finally found it. I found my conduit between me and God, between me and others. I was always that weird kid that never felt like she fit in, even if people did let me come or invited me. I always felt like I was that odd person out, you know? I can't um, think how much I... That's, that was the first question I wanted to ask you. Um, that's something this year I've realized more than ever. Um, something had happened where I don't remember. I was able... We were able to find videos of me when I was three, four, five, six, seven. And um, <clears throat> very much like you, I was running businesses in the family. I was taking people's keys and doing valet, although I couldn't drive. I loved that. <laughs> I did it for the entire apartment complex we lived in. My mom was single when she had me. She was 21 when she had me. And uh, so she met my my father um, when I was three. So we lived in this apartment complex in Jersey for a little while. And I took everybody's keys in the apartment complex and was trying to uh, make money. And I did, you know, I did little things like that forever. There was a thing that happened though when I went and started meeting my father's family um, I remember feeling I felt very not the same as everybody, and then we moved here to Nashville, and I felt very much not the same as everybody. And I, I was thinking, I can't remember a time in my life where I felt in the group with everybody else. And even now, in my professional career, I feel that so much. But I, I view that as kind of like a nice asset um, because that very thing that makes you different is a thing that oftentimes you can lean into, and that's the thing that makes you you. Or is one of them. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about that. You have a way of performing that is so theatrical, but it, it's in, in a way where it's so natural. I've just been watching people play for so long in so many different levels where you can just see somebody who's put in the hours and they've really, they're just being who they are. And there's only identity there and there's no endeavor to try to be somebody else. And I think I saw you play at. Um, uh, uh, it was a woman-based event because there's so many. Uh, it was like a CM, I think it was CMT. Uh, Next Women of Country, maybe. Might have been, might have been, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, was, I was with my agent and it was at the Hutton Hotel. And you, you performed by yourself with your band, uh, acoustic, and you just destroyed the room. And I just, this woman is so different than anything I've ever seen in Nashville, let alone the, the world. Like, I've never seen anybody do what you do. So, you're talking about how you've always felt different and how you haven't, you've never felt it in the group. So, has that always manifested itself in your music, in the way that you perform, the way you take the stage? I always have seemed to be drawn to the ones that are different, that are so unabashedly themselves. Like, there's. There's something to the people like Dolly, uh, David Bowie, Tom Waits. There's something about these people that just enamor me. I am obsessed with them. I want to learn every little facet of them that I can because what they have is magic. You know, there's something about them that I see that I think is magical. But also, there is this unashamed, like, push in themselves to show themselves. Lady Gaga, I think, is someone that has used self-expression to make an impact, to kind of make that Bowie-esque entrance into this uh, industry. Right. And yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there was a time in my life, I'll be honest, that um, it was a middle school when I was like, you know, I prayed for a couple years there. I was like, God, just make me the same. Make me like them. Make me... Yeah whatever I need to be to fit in. And every time 
I would wear what others wore and I'd straighten my hair and do the deep part and do all the things that everyone else did. I would try to dress like them. And I felt like, yeah, almost like a duck in sheep's clothing. Like I was like, it is obvious that no one believes this, right? But does this make me cooler? Like, will you like me now? And, you know, one thing that kind of messed with me a little bit when I was younger was I didn't feel like I had really any good friends until I started singing. And then people liked me. What? And, and that kind of messed with me a little bit. Um, and my parents looking back are like, no, Kaylee, you know, people liked you before. But I could tell that the way people treated me changed once I started singing. And... Um, oh. It kind of, it messed with me for a while. And there's been many moments where I've thought maybe if I did something different, you know, maybe I would, you know, and by different, I mean more normal, normalize myself in some capacity. And every time I do, I feel like less of a person. And I kind of learned that at a young age. So I just, for any, anybody that considers themselves a weirdo out there, just please know that the odd things about me that made it hell to grow up right are exactly why I get to do what I do now right 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 I mean that's exactly what makes me special that's what and in this industry you have to have something special to push through something that is uniquely you and all that is is my weirdness and the things that got me bullied or made fun of now they are my tools they are my toolkit so don't god don't try to and whitewash isn't the right word, but like wash yourself, like wash off the saturation for more of a watercolor perspective. Like don't, don't try to be like them. If you're vivid, let yourself be vivid. If you're all blue, be blue. I mean, it's really just be yourself because you were made this way for a reason. And it's also the thing too, where it's like, is it, is it, is it you having a weirdness? Is it you having something that's unique or is it you I feel like you and I were more or less forced down this road, but you you take the time to actually trust in the spirit that that is wildly uniquely you. And we live in a town that is pretty much an incubator for kind of like a singular identity a lot of the time, yep. between males and females. And you've done a fantastic job uh, traversing that. And kudos to you and your team for figuring Thank out you. how to do that and keep on doing that because it's beautifully well done. Um, I'm so glad to hear that you feel like you're that uh, you're a weird person. <laughs> oh, for sure. Uh, ask my team. Like I, I found out about I was getting to do a big event the same day that I found out that I was going to get to sing a song on Sims, and I was more excited about Sims than the big event. And my team was like, "We don't uh, what?" And I'm like, "Sims was my childhood. I love. Like, I I was the. Be- I don't care how good anyone says they were. My Sims were it." My Sims are it. They still are. Every now and then when I need control over some universe, I might go on there and play some people, uh-huh. make a girl a baker. I don't know. Get wild. Maybe she's a scientist. Who knows? <laughs> that shit. <laughs> oh, man. It's so funny that I, I have a lot of sides that I think my team is starting to uh, come to know. And every now and then they're like, oh, that's really cool. But most of the time they're like, you like that? And I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> uh, that's that's for that's like uh that's beautiful uh sims were a, a crucial part of my life into realizing how much i loved the idea of owning and operating a business because that's all yeah 
that's all I wanted to do. I was like, I just want a woman and I want her to own a bakery. And then I want her to have kids and they're going to run the bakery. And forever and ever, my limbs will live on. My limbs, my Sims will live on. Uh, limbs and Sims. I mean, that's- Limbs like, and Sims. That's like Roger Miller coming into our subconscious. It's like the new Boats and hose, Sims and Limbs. Right. It can buy me some Boats and hose. is also part two to that one. <laughs> Um, so one thing I want to ask you about, and then I, I'm not, ex- I don't remember how long we agreed to, to doing this. So let me know. When you're you good. Out. I just need to get off at five 30 if possible. Oh, of course. It's yeah. Possible. By you then I'm, I'm good. You can get off right now. You could be like, I got it. My birds are outside. I <laughs> Man. I, I feel like I'm probably an old grandma and at the rate in which I'm buying old timey clothes to try and make cool and new the plants I have and how many birds I have in my backyard um, and how much time I spend feeding them and cleaning their little bird baths out and like making sure they're happy. I've started this Pavlovian experiment of sorts. Uh, Have have you ever watched Kill Bill? It's the only Tarantino I don't really love. I get that. But do you know the part of the whistle that the nurse uh, walks down the hallway, the... So uh, I whistle that song every single time that I feed my birds. And I've been doing it for about four months now. (laughs) And the thing is, they haven't whistled it back to me. I think that I made an error by picking such a complex song. I should have picked a certain, you know, like three note little melody. But I picked that song. And the thing is now, every time that I go out there with my big bag of bird seed and I start whistling that song, Mm -hmm. the birds go berserk. And I think it's the coolest thing in the entire world. I feel like a modern day Snow White when that happens. And a little piece of me heals inside. I bet so. I mean, so that is insane. Are you, so how, what is it like to own and operate birds? Like, I guess you don't really own birds. Yeah, they work for the bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie, is that it? (laughs) That's the old joke. Uh, No, man, I, I just... I find Facebook. the birds work for Facebook. We know that. Let's be honest. That's probably who they work for. They're telling you Adidas ads. Damn it, Zuckerberg. Um, sorry, can I cuss on here after I've said like five cuss words? <laughs> I like cursing. I think cursing's real. I mean, you know, some people don't, but I think it's, well, I think it's real. You're obviously some people. Friend. Some uh, people are like, man, why you got to cuss so much in your music? And I'm like, look. I was a staff writer when I wrote these songs. I was too poor to afford therapy. I was like, every day it was just a venting session where I got to talk about something I was going through. And I was like, so yeah, I cussed. I didn't think that this would make it on a record. I was just <laughs> writing like, oh man. Um, you got brought on as a staff writer before an artist? That's crazy. To me. Yeah, I love, I love writing. Um, I got my deal. I worked downtown from 19 years old to 21, 22. That's uh, two and a half years and then 22. And then um, I finally got a publishing deal as a staff writer for Universal Publishing. That's and uh, after that, I kind of slowly lessened downtown um, because the guy I really loved down there, Humphrey, had passed away, the band leader. And after that, it kind of just, it changed, you know, the atmosphere changed. And I was like, I want out. But uh, no, that was why when you reached out about this podcast, I was like, I would love to because... I feel like my life is a series of full circles and I felt like this was a really cool full circle because I know that uh, my team may have told you, but I used to go and watch you. You're one of the few, you and Chris Casello, because when y'all played, both of you played, I saw something special and I saw something that was very unique and singular 
And um, yeah, I used to go and watch you at Roberts. You always played at Roberts and I always played at Tootsie's. And I go down there and watch you after my gig sometimes. And um, yeah, I, I have a weird thing. I, I don't really like to go and bother people after shows and stuff. I believe that when people connect, it all connects for the right reasons. And I don't ever want to push myself upon people. So we, I've, we never met down there. But um, yeah, I used to watch you play all the time. That's insane. That's that's so funny. I so how small this world is is almost as if it's a Sims world. Yeah, it's almost Guy, not even real. I think God's just playing Sims sometimes. I think so. You've said two things that I think would just be amazing, um, like series. So the first one could be God playing Sims, which would be would be amazing to recreate. And the second is scrapbook that shit. Scrapbook that shit. <laughs> episode three. Oh my God, dude, Sims, I joke about this so much, but I'm like, God is definitely playing Sims because on the game, if you've never played it, it's just, you create people, you get to make their lives either good or bad. It doesn't matter. Um, and anyways, the thing is, if they, if you set them on a mission, like a task, okay, go wash the dishes. And then you go, oh no, 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 don't wash the dishes. You can click out and it'll exit, but they will walk into that room and then they'll go, Ugh. And they'll like look around frustrated, like, what was I doing in this room? And that happens to me too much, too much to not be some sort of simulation. <laughs> Simu- so you think simulation's real in some way? Ah, uh, man, I don't know. Uh, that That's one of those questions. If I was inebriated, I could go off on another tangent about it. But uh, Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, inebriated me has so many ideas and grand illusions of life and theories. Are you a dreamer? Um, or are you a? Are is that your thing? Is that your vice of choice? Yeah, yeah, a little bit of that, a little bit of something else. But uh, <laughs> I love drinking. Is tough for me, man. There is something I, I, ironically being. I just can't. I can't drink too much. I end up getting just legitimately sick for weeks. Um, yeah. but uh. Cannabis. I mean, I just got, you know, my fans are, you know, big cannabis people, a lot, some of them at least. Um, my God, it, it's fantastic. And it, unless it's, unless you start thinking about uh, the, the, the fact that this could all be a simulation, but I bet when you're out <laughs> singing to your birds and feeding them seeds, that has to be a fantastic thing. Oh man, it is. Um, it's, it's definitely, I definitely am more on the hippie side. I'm definitely more on the cannabis side than liquor, just because my argument there is if I smoke, I may go write a song. I may eat a pizza. If I drink too much, I'm going to talk to the wrong damn guy and probably make out with him at some bar. And I don't need to go down that route again. I'm not 21 anymore. (laughs) Alcohol has never made me make a good decision. You're not supposed, it's poison. That's why you throw it up. It's like, we have like receptors in our body that are made for, for consumption of, of THC and, and CBD and all the other things. And it's like, but like, you don't have Jack Daniels receptors. No, <laughs> there's a reason. <laughs> oh man. Uh, man. Some of my friends drink and they can drink like nobody's business. And I try, I try so hard because I get wrapped up in the excitement of a social hangout. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, I might need to go barf. I need to go lay down. I'm like, I get really, really sissy by the end of the night. Ashley McBride is like, you don't need to drink. You don't need to try to drink with me. And I'm like, but I want to. Oh my gosh. 
So Ashley told me verbatim the same thing. There was so her tour, yeah, her tour manager, Sarge, or I might not be her tour manager anymore. He was kind of a dick. Um, Sarge, he was not the nicest guy. I don't think, I don't think it was, it was working, but um, he would give everyone Jaeger shots each night. And we were opening for Ashley um, with my friend D. White. I don't know if you know D. I don't uh, think so. You and, Drake? Uh, 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 no, D. White. Although Drake um, White's from Alabama too. My friend D's from Alabama. He's on, I think he's on Warner. I think you're okay. on you're on Columbia? No, Universal on Capital. Universal. Capital, that's amazing. That's beautiful. Sorry for getting that wrong. Um, no, you're good. Each night, man, it would be one Jägermeister, and then the next show we're we're getting into sometimes it's three, four before the show. And it's like I think she came and saw us play one night, and then after the set, she's like, You gotta stop trying to, to hang with the big dogs, Daniel. Like, damn, <laughs> only person who could tell me that, and I would love that be Ashley McBride. You know, I, I, I think it's not normal, I guess, but honestly, I love being sober on stage. It is my favorite feeling in the world is to be on stage. It's a better high, a better drunk than anything can ever give you. 100%. And my thing is like, I may want to like drink and smoke after maybe, but honestly, I mean, I'd rather just be sober going on stage because I like the feeling I'm addicted to it. I know I am. I can tell you're addicted to the stage. You, so people who. You can just see it when so it's. And I think I think body posture says a lot of a lot of what we might not know how to communicate. Uh, you know, so because we have been humans longer than we've been speaking, obviously. So it's like we know how to say things with the way we stand and the way we move. And I'm really fascinated by the way people carry themselves on stage, and it's like uh, you have this. Uh, you like in the fact that you're talking about how you want to be a caretaker. It's fascinating to see that. So be meeting a fan and me being not you. It seems like that that seedling of wanting to care ultimately like manifest is manifesting in this like really beautiful. I don't want to say this might cheapen it, but I want to say like a, like dominant alpha presence that you have when you perform, but it's like no, nothing else is happening when you're on stage, except you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's a very, very real thing. And so the fact that you're talking about when you're, you're sober, when you're doing it, that even like adds more to the truth of actually what's happening and how real of a connection that you're, ha- that you're having uh, when you're performing. Have, have you performed at all recently? And has it, and has it felt weird? Because I have, and it's felt a little strange. I did a uh, drive-in show with Ashley the other day and um, <gasps> it was in Athens, Georgia. And it was really cool. You know, um, she had to holler at some folks. By the time she got up there, full band, people were starting to congregate. And she's like, hey, follow the rules so we can keep doing this. But uh, yeah, it was it was very different. Very different, you know? But after so many months of playing to a live stream um, and to a camera, it, it was a little bit more normal, you know? Wow. Just, it's just weird. Like, I, I miss just seeing people light up. I miss giving my all to give it to someone. Because right now I feel like I'll be sitting in my house giving it all on an hour-long live stream and then I'm done. Yeah. And I don't know who connected. I don't know what really happened. I don't know who got anything from it. There's no mercy. And I'm just, I'm just sitting here and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll go cook dinner. Um, I'll do some laundry maybe. Uh, you know, I've, 
I've gotten so used to that connection. I realized that is what I wanted through music was to connect. I wanted to be heard. I wanted to tell my stories and tell other stories through music. And, you know, getting to watch people sing along, that was really nice. That was a good feeling to feel that back again, to see people singing along to songs I just put out. Um, But, you know, still singing to a parking lot's a little different than singing to a crowd. Singing to a parking lot is not the same thing. Uh, Fantastic new record. Uh, So you were out in the record. I absolutely love it. I found out recently that you co-wrote and co-produced it. Yeah. That's insane. That's wildly beautiful. Oh, that's very brave. And that'll be my last question is like, how did... Like now that you talked about the fact that you're a very entrepreneurial person and you you have a good way of chasing a vision and making it happen. Um, I could see why that that happened in the deal with your record. Um, but what was that process like when so many people's first albums, especially in Nashville, uh, they're not producing and they're not writing most of the songs, especially the singles? So what I'd been kind of watching in Nashville at the time from 19 to about 22, 23, no, well, no, it was about 23, 24 when I started really working on this album and starting, um, I was watching through those years, just a series of different, especially women that I saw. And I was like, oh my God, you're so good. You have something so special about you. This is amazing. And I'm so excited for them. And then they put out an album and all of a sudden it's like, I I lost them. Like I lost that thing that I saw so special in them. And the thing is that echoed just right back to me as far as what I had went through when I was younger. I have had a lot of opportunities, great opportunities that I'm so grateful and shaped me. But many times where a bigger artist or producer had somehow heard of me and brought me in to record an album and it would be songs I wrote, but every single time I sang and then, you know, the band got together and played and it just sounded like another demo from Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, And it's like, I somehow lost myself in between the vocal booth And the burnt CD I'm given by the end of it. I was never allowed to just sit in with the producer and hang out and get to know it all. So uh, when I started this, you know, at first I was just a writer at Universal uh, for about, I guess, a year and a half. And I was having a great time writing for others. You know, I was happy as a little clam, knowing I wanted to do artistry one day. But also there has always been a, a part of me that feels wholly unworthy of being an artist. You know, oh, I was imposter syndrome. That's real. Oh God. It is it is the biggest thing that my psychiatrist has to work with me on. Cause I'm like, my biggest fear is being on top of the world and someone leaning over and going, I know you don't know what you're doing. Ah, ah. You know that everyone in this room knows that you don't know what you're doing. And I'm like, oh true. You're right. I'm a fraud. <laughs> Cause you know, I just make music. I just I I talk about my family too much in rights and, you know, I bitch about exes and I love melodies and I'm able to put them together and that's how I make my money. There is not a surefire. I can't say that I learned this in a four-year degree. Like I can't base it on anything and I can't actually, with art being as subjective as art is, how can I say that I'm actually good at my craft? It's What is the definition of good? It's a weird skill to have. I can 100% uh, agree with you on that. And that's a beautiful way to phrase it. I've never heard anybody phrase it that way. But, you know, it's, it's just... Um, it's always been an issue with me is imposter syndrome. I always... Also, as a young girl, you know, I, 
I would look at TV and I would see the people that were coming up, you know, in the 2000s and 2010s. And they were all really tan. They were all very slim. They all wore crop tops and they danced on stage in ways that I didn't think I could, you know, and they were all blonde haired and blue eyed. And I was the furthest thing from it. And I remember just always seeing that and that being, you know, put in front of my face and put in front of my face. And this is why I, I believe that children shouldn't be allowed to have social media for a while because those pictures being tossed in front of my face, these picture perfect people doing what I would give anything to do. When I saw them and I put them up against me in my mind, all I saw was faults in myself. And it's like, I would just... Roosevelt said that uh, comparison is the death of happiness, which I think is true. But I do believe that comparison can also be the birth of, I mean, a fresh perspective. I mean, I always... I have a really bad thing about comparing myself to people that are doing better than me, that look better than me, that oh. sing better than me, and have worked on this far longer than me. Instead oh, wow. of comparing myself to where I could be if I hadn't got to follow my path, if I was not provided with good people around me, if I did not have a strong team, if I had not got this publishing deal and not left Tootsies, would I still be down there playing covers every night? Would I still be playing chicken fried? Like, that's the question I have to ask myself. I love Zach Brown, but that song we had to play it every night. And after a while, you're like, you're like, I don't even like my chicken fried anymore. I'm fucking, I'm ordering, give me the veal. I am done with this chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. But you know, it, I used to really struggle with that. And I, there's a saying that really has stayed prevalent in my mind. And it is be who you needed when you were younger. Right. Right. And that to me, what I needed was an imperfect, uh, just an imperfect person that really messed up sometimes and probably said too much, probably acted wild sometimes, got drunk and got photographed. Who knows what she's done? But you know what? Deep down, she seems to be a good enough person and she seems to try to do good. So wow. it's the whole thing with Francis Snaggletooth. Like the people that hurt the fewer, the fewest people in the world are the most beautiful. And with our career, we're given this opportunity to spread either darkness or light. And we get the choice every day to see what we spread. And I just, I'm so grateful that I see so many good creators spreading goodness and light in the world with their creations. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. In a, in a very beautiful way. And you... Oh, sorry, I realized I never got to the producer part of the oh. question. <laughs> That's all good. That's fine. So, <laughs> I think so. I think the lily pad approach is very nice if you're an honest person because this is us. This is us basically just improvising. I love improvising with my guitar. So to do it with a, with a with the voice with someone else, that's beautiful. So yeah, the deal with that producing thing that that's crazy. So it's like <clears throat> even you just going back to the idea too of what you were just saying. All that even adds more to the value of the fact that you produce your own record. You're just you're, it seems like you can't help but be very thoughtful. I like to be thoughtful. I think sometimes I'm thoughtless. Uh, I'm sometimes a little less uh, polished in the way I approach things uh, sometimes, but I'm learning. Um, oh, you yeah. mean being an ambitious person, I guess? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yes. I had a birthday book that um, it had all of these different birthdays. And on mine, it said that... Uh, you know, you're going to do good, but you will be ruthless in the pursuit of your passions. 
And, you know, I kind of worry about that word sometimes. I'm like, I don't want to be remembered as ruthless. I want to be remembered as kind, you know? And um, that's something I always try to remind myself. Like, I, I'm very much, I've always had to run my own show. Ever since I was 13 years old, I've been running my own show. I've been designing my own merch. I've been buying the merch, counting it in, selling it every night after I got done performing. So the thing is, I've had a control over everything. And when they took me as a staff writer, uh, I sat down with my publisher, Cindy Foreman, who is a saint in this town. And uh, she said, hey, these are the songs I kind of feel like are you. Would you agree? And I said, yeah, these are these are the ones that are the closest to my heart because these are the ones about me or my family. And she goes, well, who do you want to produce it? You know, and she starts naming off three or four big names in town that I've always heard. And I see at award ceremonies, you know, and the only thing is every time I got to work with someone that was bigger than me and some big dog, I was the little dog that didn't get much say. And uh, I said, you know what? I want to work with someone who is young and eager as well, because I've also been blessed with when I hire people that are young like me and they may not have the education, but they have that ambition. That drive. Yeah. That, that is the key that is to the- a successful team. I think is so. People that love music so much, they die without it. Mm. That's the people you want on your team. Right. Come on. And, you know, with all of that said, I just wanted someone that was young and eager and wanted it just as much as me. And uh, I've been writing with Mikey Reeves at the time. He was another staff writer at uh, at Universal Publishing. And we just, we hit it off. We wrote a song called Mean Something first time that we got together. And it just kind of fell out in a couple hours. And we were like, hey, that was pretty great. And when Cindy starts asking about producers, his name was one of the first ones that came to mind because I thought he wants to prove himself too. That means we're both going to win if this does well. It's not just me winning and another day for him. Uh, I want us both to win together. And also, I want someone that won't just override me, will actually let me bring in stuff. And uh, so Mikey and I started working together and we did Waits Days uh, based off of Tom Waits and how he would use random stuff to make sounds. We'd bring random shit into the studio and play stuff off of it. And what I really... (sighs) This is... This sounds kind of uh, not evil, I guess, but I can't find another synonym. But uh, I, I always have hated being impersonated, like people mimicking things I did. Okay. I just I had a friend growing up that did it. And my mom always said that, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Right. And I was like, but I want to be different. <laughs> so the thing is with this album, it kind of, I mean, we're doing each of these songs on a $500 demo budget. So it was just me and Mikey. We were having to make most of the sounds ourselves or bring in friends and go, hey, can we give you an IOU like, and just pay you later? We're just really trying to figure out something. Okay. And do a t-shirt. Right. Yeah. And Rob McNelly, when he's like, okay, I'll come do it. Sure. And like, oh, wow. you know, just bringing in different people like that, they were willing to kind of gorilla style, you know, put this together. And uh, yeah, it, it just, it worked. And he let me be myself and put whatever I wanted in and let me really have a strong hand on the control of all of it. And truly made me a co-producer instead of me being the artist that sits in the room. And then they're like, ah, oh, yeah, she's a co-producer too. You know, like he really let me be there for everything. And, you know, there were some days where I wanted to leave when I was like, dear God, I don't want to comp drum yeah. beats today. I don't want to do the drums, like, please God. But I was like, you know what? 
I need to be here for this. Like, this is my work that's about to go into the world. I can spend a couple more hours. So, um, yeah, it's... What'd you say? Awareness. Yeah. It's... um, We're getting to put medicine in the world. We're getting to put joy into the world. So make sure it's good. Make sure you get the point across. And that's what my goal is. My God. And you are literally sincerely doing it on a daily basis. Uh, just dealing out that that those dopamine rushes um, with music, with posting. And uh, you do a, a fantastic grace, just a really very elegant and graceful and wildly unique way. Uh, oh, thank I'm, I'm, you. Yeah, absolutely. Just love what you're doing. And the fact that uh, after being able to talk with you, it, it, it makes even more sense. And it's like five, 10 times even deeper. I see like the person uh, behind it all. Uh, absolutely beautiful. Uh, thank you for the time. This was a beautiful conversation. Dude, thank you so much for putting up with me m- with my lily pack conversations, my <laughs> stuttering and words that I don't pronounce correctly. It's a, it's a crazy, crazy world to be a musician that also has to speak. It's <laughs> great. It's so funny. Damn, that's funny. A musician also to speak. My gosh. All right. That'll be- yeah, I'm a, I'm a songwriter, not a speaker. We should write. We should write a song sometime. I'm down. Let me know. I mean, hell, I'm here. I'm not leaving anytime soon. So let me know when you're free. All right, that's fair. All right. Well, enjoy your five thirty and um, enjoy your birds, and I'll, I'll talk to you later. All righty. I'll see you later. Thank you again.